Father, thank you again. Thank you so much, Lord, for the time now that we have to spend in your word looking to what is true, and most specifically, Lord, what is true about yourself. So, Lord, give us understanding and give us insight. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. It's good to be here today. It's good to see you. Um, Continue our series on the Apostles' Creed today, obviously looking at the biblical foundation behind the development of that creed earlier uh, in the century or in in the history of the church, and it's been certainly an instrument in the church used for many, many years to help uh, declare the truth, to help summarize the faith, if you will, uh, when it comes to communicating who we are and what we believe. Now, we're going to turn our attention to Romans chapter 1 this morning, and This is difficult for me because I'm very tempted to just forget the Apostles' Creed series and preach through Romans because we're starting at the beginning. I love Romans, but I will yield to temptation, or not yield to temptation, I will resist temptation, and we will just spend this morning in Romans chapter 1. Lord willing, one day we'll come back to this fantastic letter uh, penned by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we're going to spend this morning looking at the first six verses, specifically regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, when you think about identity, all of us have an identity. And there are many things that define your identity and my identity. We could name many, many things. For example, your career is one of those things that will help to shape your identity. In fact, some people are so driven by their career that they are only known or want to only be known by what they do. Some find their identity in the things that they do. Others will seek to find identity in their appearance, right? In their physical appearance. And so they will spend hours and hours each week, days, each day even, concentrated on how they present themselves. Others will find their identity in a particular hobby or a particular sport. And we can go on and on with the examples uh, that we could illustrate that with this morning. However, one area that we all find identity in, and one of the things, one of the areas in life that seeks to shape who we are is our families. Now, for some of you, that just unsettled you a bit, all right? Because you know, if you reflect upon your family, if that's what is shaping my identity, then I'm in big trouble because my family's a mess, right? Some of you are encouraged by that because you have a strong family. But it is true, for good or for bad, our family will be a place that will shape our identity. I can see that even in my children. There are things that come out of my children that I can see me in, and all of those are good, and then I can see things in my children that I can see Jennifer in, and those are good (laughs) most days. Our family is shaping who they are. All of us have an identity that is shaped by many different things. You know, the same 
thing could be true, said, said the, the same truth could be said for all of us, we are impacted by identity. It was Neil Anderson that put it this way. He said that no person can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way he perceives himself. No person can consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way he or she perceives himself to be. And so, what we experience is oftentimes the attack of Satan when it comes to our identity. And we are impacted by that in a negative way. Satan will try to persuade you that you are a failure. That you are a fool of no use to God or others. You're worthless, an embarrassment to Christ. Wasting your time to try to do anything good for the cause of Christ or for the good of your family. Inferior, hopeless victim of the past. Helpless to change your future. A pathetic excuse beyond the reach of prayer. You know, our identity is often under assault by the evil one. Now, earlier when I said that we are shaped by our identity, I didn't say that that was good or bad, except in my own example, but I, I, that can be good or bad. There are certain things that we are impacted by that can be good things and certainly others that can be bad things. The reality this morning is that when we consider our own identity, we must consider the identity of Christ because His identity will impact our identity for good or for bad. In fact, Jesus Himself was, is a man who is shaped by his own relationship to his father. In fact, his identity is determined by his own character and relationship, his nature, because he is God. And his being, his identity, is something that will ultimately shape your identity. You see, we have to remember that when we were created, we were created in the image of God, all of us. No matter who you are, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, white or black, or anything in between, all of us were created for the glory of God in the image of God. And it didn't take but chapter 2 of the Bible to mess that up royally because of sin. And so we have had an identity crisis ever since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. So when we consider this morning the identity of Jesus, as we affirm his identity in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We were making a declaration and an affirmation of a truth that is grounded in the authority of God's Word that impacts every single person on the planet. 
everyone. So what does the identity of Christ have to do with our identity? Well, friends, at the end of the day, while you are certainly, and I am certainly, shaped by many different factors in life, culturally, ethnically, socially, you name it. We are all impacted and our identity is formed and shaped by those things. At the end of the day, you can, you can press further and further back and, and say and affirm that all of us, no matter where we've come from or who we are, whatever context that we exist in right now, all of us, all of us are either identified in one of two categories. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, referring to Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But is it not the spiritual that, that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual? The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so when I say that the identity of Jesus Christ matters for you, it matters in every way. So, I want to come back to our identity later in the sermon, but I want us to now go to Romans chapter 1, and I want us to walk through with Paul, even in his introduction, and begin to see the dependence that Paul had. He references his own identity in verse 1, doesn't he? A servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Paul's saying, this is who I am. But who I am is, is very much dependent upon who this Christ is. You know, people have always and will continue to do the same today, confuse the identity of Jesus because what we generally as humanity will try to do is we will try to fashion Jesus after our likeness. What we do is we attempt to craft a Jesus that we are comfortable with and make a Jesus that looks like us instead of looking to Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible and falling under submission to him. That is a deadly thing to do. God made you in his image. You're not making God in your image. So the true identity of Jesus is something that I would say that Relatively speaking, few people in the world get right today. But when we get his identity right, everything else will seen, be seen in its proper perspective and our own identity will be revealed for what it is and what it should be and can be. You know, Paul, this is not something new. Confusing Jesus and, and, and denying him 
Paul's writing this letter to Christians who lived in Rome. I don't know if you've done much history in your life, but Rome was not a place that was friendly to monotheism, the, the belief that there's one God. They had a pantheon of gods. And so for this man, this, this man in their perspective, to, to claim that he is the king was a threat to the Roman Empire. So they didn't take, lot, they didn't take kindly to Christians. And so Paul, with that in mind and knowing that backdrop in which he's writing to the church at, at Rome, he is writing, making declaration that this is indeed Christ and this is his identity and that we must base everything we are about upon him. So I want us to look at the identity of Jesus from the words of the Apostle Paul because that will help us to see just how he impacts our own identity in a way that is ultimately for our good. You should not see this as a threat necessarily, although it can be the person and work of Christ. So let's look, at see, let's look and see how his identity impacts our identity. Number one, who is this Jesus? Number one, we need to consider that, that Jesus is this, the promised son. Look at verses one and two. Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. Verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. As Paul was writing this letter to the church at Rome, he's reminding them that what, was, what, what he was about, what he is proclaiming, this gospel that he unpacks beautifully in the, the letter to the Romans, that all of this is not recent news. What he is talking about had been long ago promised. He was set apart for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel concerning this Jesus who had been promised in the Old Testament, promised beforehand, we're told. In fact, God's promise dates all the way back to the Genesis account. You don't have to wait till you get to the prophets. You can go long before them, and even in Moses' writings there in the, the, first let, the first book of the Bible, the first few chapters of the Bible, God's promise to bring hope to this world, to bring hope to a people who's now marred their identity because they were made in the image of God. They've now stained that identity because of their sin and their rebellion against God. He is making a promise even there to them that he is going to resolve this. Right after their fall into sin, we know that God speaks. And he is speaking to the serpent that deceived the man and the woman. He says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly. You shall go and dust, you shall eat all the days of your life. And then in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, who's this he? He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Already in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible is pointing forward to this Savior that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. promises reinforced all the way through the Old Testament until it's fully and ultimately realized in the arrival of Jesus when he comes in glorious fashion, at least some would say not so glorious, 
Galatians chapter 4, Paul affirms that. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, so that we might receive a new identity. He's the promised son. One of the reasons we are drawn to the truth about Jesus is because the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament, looking forward to Him, New Testament, proclaiming His arrival, all of Scripture is pointing to Him. Jesus is not just a New Testament part two. The Old and New Testament address the gospel. The way it used to be said long ago, I like this little rhyme or way of putting it, the old is by the new explained. The new is in the old contained. Or another way, the new is in the old concealed. The old is by the new revealed. It's all about Jesus. He is the promised son. That's exactly who he is. He's the one that's been promised all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who would come and crush the head of the serpent, promised, affirmed, promised, affirmed all the way throughout the Old Testament, and he arrives. He carries out his ministry. Which leads me to point number two. He is the powerful Savior. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 1. He was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, one of the greatest errors we make and can make is to put ourselves at the center of the gospel. When in fact the gospel is all about Jesus. We, we like to put ourselves at the center of everything. That is the problem. And so oftentimes, even with the gospel, we will put ourselves as the centerpiece. When Jesus is the point. Jesus is the good news. We're the bad news. There's nothing good about sin. There's nothing good about rebelling against a perfect creator who made us in his image and had everything good for us. There's nothing good about that. But there's everything good about God who gave himself to be our Savior. While the good news is for us, it is not supremely about us. Paul, even in his greeting, is establishing the fact that the gospel is ultimately centered upon Christ. He is the one who was promised and he is the one who is fulfilling that promise through his life and death and resurrection and promise to come again. Friends, this news is not ultimately our news. It is God's news. And this news is not ultimately about how we can help ourselves get out of this predicament that we're in, but ultimately about the one who came to help those who could never help themselves by redeeming them from the pit. He's the powerful Savior. Several observations we need to make. And by the way, these are being affirmed in the statement of the Apostles' Creed, but I want you to see them most importantly from the Bible. 
First of all, you need to reflect on, upon his humanity. Look at what verse 3 says concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. We know that back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David was given a promise. God makes a covenant with him and 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, the Lord declares to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall, be, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Bit of a double fulfillment there because he's referring to Solomon, but ultimately he's pointing us to the son who will reign forever. There will be no end to this kingdom. Jesus was God in the flesh. Listen, Jesus was, descend, he, he was a descendant of David. He was a real man. I don't, this is important for you to understand that when God came through the person of Jesus, it was God putting on humanity. The Apostles' Creed states that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but he was born. He didn't descend, he didn't come to the world through some kind of divine space shuttle. He was born, just like you and me. You know, I, I just imagine what it must have been like, not just for Mary, but for Joseph, as Jesus was born, and regardless of what some people might say, as beautiful of a, of a thing as a birth is, there's not, babies just coming out aren't pretty. Can I just say that? You know, people say, oh, how precious. Go clean him or her. Then we will say that. I'm sure Joseph, that's, that's how Jesus entered the world, just like us. He was born. He had real flesh. He lived his life as a man. He, he didn't walk around with some kind of elegant glow and halo over his head. In fact, he laid aside his right. In fact, I've heard it said before, if we could take our little digital cameras back then and take a picture of Jesus standing with his disciples, if you didn't know, you would probably be hard-pressed to pick Jesus out of that picture. Because he lived his life as a man. And over time, friends, the humanity of Jesus has often either been denied or distorted. But listen, he was 100% human. He lived his life that way. He didn't live life, and when things got hard, he just zapped over to his divine attributes. He lived his life as a man under temptation, but persevered. Again, some have simply denied his humanity by making, out, making him out to be some kind of superhuman. But the Bible clearly affirms his full humanity, and to deny such is a serious matter, and I'll explain why in a moment. But listen to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, 
Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So when you're being tempted, it is important that you affirm the humanity of Christ because he can associate. He knows what temptation is like, and so you run to him and cry out to him for help because he knows what temptation is like, but yet he endured as a man. It's important that we affirm his humanity. He not only lived his life as a man, but he died as a man. And friends, listen, had Jesus not lived as one of us, he would have been an inadequate substitute for us. Because only a man can die. Only a, a man can, can associate with other men and women as a human. As a man, Jesus obeyed the law, and as a man, he died for sin. Yet, he was not only a man. He was God in the flesh, which is a second point. We need to affirm his divinity. Paul writes, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul understood that Jesus was not just another man that we should give special recognition to. In fact, when Thomas, after Jesus died and, and was resurrected, doubting Thomas, you remember him? He was struggling with all of this, and, and Jesus comes and tells him to, to place his hands, his scars, and in his side, and Thomas looks at Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. He wasn't taking the Lord's name in vain. He was affirming the fact that this was God. Apostles' Creed, we affirm that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That's what, friends, one of the reasons the virgin birth is so important for us to understand is that it's through the virgin birth that God was able to become a man. And it was a supernatural activity. It's a supernatural work. This moment of conception in Mary's womb was not her doing. It kind of freaked her out a bit. I can imagine. She had not been with a man and yet by the power of God now had a child. Virgin birth is an affirmation of the supernatural work of God to, to enter a fallen world, but through, not through the actions of two people, but rather through the activity of God. This was his mission, and he overcame natural factors to accomplish his divine purpose. And only someone who was divine, only someone who was divine could bear 
sins, not of one man, but of all throughout human history who would believe. And only someone who is divine could raise himself from the dead. So what the Apostles' Creed, and more importantly, the Bible, affirms and teaches is that Jesus was both human and divine, and without this reality, we would not have salvation. We wouldn't. So to simply say that you believe in Jesus is not sufficient. What do you believe about him? You must also believe that he is the God-man who alone has the right and who alone has indeed accomplished our salvation. He is the powerful Savior. Number three, he's also the exalted Lord. Look at verses five and six. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, my ministry is about this one who is the promised son, about the one who is powerful to bring salvation, and about the one whose name will be made known among every nation. He is the exalted Lord. He is the one whom all people one day will bow their knee to. Even those who will be cast into darkness and and will receive judgment, they will lend themselves and bow themselves to recognizing his lordship even as they go off into judgment. Jesus is Lord. and One of my favorite passages is a very popular passage when we are affirming these truths is Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and there in this context, Paul is actually making an argument, and he's making an argument for the people to be unified and to have joy, to be of the same mind. He's, he's calling them to be like Jesus, and so he's, his, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, but then he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which was yours in Christ Jesus. So now he's setting up Christ as their, their example in this particular case. And he says, have your, have your minds this way, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't have to grasp it, he was God. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The Lord Jesus comes as the promised Son and as the powerful Savior so that His name may be known among every nation, among every tribe, among every people group. And ultimately, friends, He comes to glorify Himself. Now, I normally try not to pick on 
songs, a whole lot. There's a popular song, at least there was years ago, that has often been sung in the church, and I think we've even sang it here a few times, not recently, but uh, a song that Michael W. Smith put together is a song by the name of Above All. And it, 99% of it's a great song. It's talking about the, the, the power of Christ. And, but one of those lines in the, in the song says, Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. That's a little inaccurate. It was about his glory above all. His glory above all else. It is true that he thought of us. It is true that he was trampled on the ground and he took the fall for us, but it was for his glory. It was for his glory. And this news of his coming, this news of who he is, this news of his power and glory is the news that must be spread to the nations because Jesus came to glorify himself as he achieves salvation and hope for people from every people group on the planet. And that is good news for all people everywhere. It's good news. So, that is who Jesus is. And as Paul begins this letter, he's going to unpack that in significant detail. But he is affirming at the onset of Romans chapter 1 that this is the one my ministry is about. I've been called as a servant, as an apostle, for the sake of the gospel. And that gospel is centered upon this one who was promised and this one who came and accomplished our redemption and this one who deserves all glory and praise among every tribe on the earth. The reason, then, that it's absolutely important to get the identity of Jesus right is because your understanding of him and relationship to him will impact your identity. So as we oftentimes do, as we seek to try to find our identity in our careers, or in money, in our appearance. While those things have their place, stop. Do your career well to the glory of God, but don't let it own you. Present yourself well, but don't let your appearance own you. Be a wise steward of resources, but don't let money own you and identify you. We all, the truth is, is, is that we, we all were created in the image of God, but as I said earlier, we stained that image because of sin. All of us have an identity crisis. All of us have, have issues because of the curse, because of sin. God created us. It was good. We had his image. We rebelled against him. We rebelled against him. And all of us, all of us are marked by a fallen identity. And friends, the consequences to that couldn't be more staggering. Because we now deserve the judgment of God. Our identity as a man of dust, as we follow in the steps of Adam and Eve, we're just like them. 
Just as they disobeyed, we disobey. Just as they sinned, we sin. Just as they were marked by the curse, we are marked by the curse. We are all in Adam. We all have that image to bear now, one that deserves the judgment of God. And yet, in a marvelous demonstration of the grace and compassion and love and yet justice and righteousness of God, God sends his son, Jesus, the one who can identify both with God and man. He identifies with God because he is God and he identifies with us because he was God now in the flesh. But listen, one big difference between he and us is that he endured in perfection. And yet he died, a sinner's death that only we deserve. And he did that. He identified with us so that our identity would no longer be an identity that is simply one with our fellow humanity under a curse. Jesus did this so that we can have a new identity so that we cannot be wrapped up in the fallenness of this world and not be identified by the things that we pursue in this world and be identified by sin, but rather to be made new in Christ. Friends, the hope that we have is not found in building an identity for ourselves, but rather finding through faith identity in Jesus. Quit listening to the lies of Satan to tell you that you are worthless and insignificant. And if you want a real identity, you must find it here or there. Friends, here. Here here it is. You are either marked by the image of man and by the curse, or you are either marked by the Son of Man and have life. That's the only two identities that really matter at the end of the day, and both impact your eternity. Both impact your eternity. Our, every part of our salvation, every ounce of our hope is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. He came and lived and yet died the death we all deserve. And as God, he conquered death through his resurrection and his one act of obedience is good for all who trust in him. Because of Jesus, because Jesus is who he said he is, and because he did the things that he did, you and I can live with joy and hope. So why is it important to get the identity of Jesus right? Because your identity and your eternity depend upon it. You get Jesus wrong, you get the wrong Jesus, and not the Jesus of the Bible, Your eternity's in danger. Your identity will not be changed. Friends, we have hope because the one who was promised came. And he did everything that he needed to do to give you life, to change you, to make you a new creation, and to give you a new identity. Have you trusted in him? And if you have not, I would urge you and plead with you today to find your identity 
in Jesus Christ alone. Not in yourself, not in what the world can provide you, but in the one who came and gave himself for you. Trust in him and have life and a new identity.